0: Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, former Google and Twitter curation lead, David Smidra. If you've gotten your news from Google, Twitter, or Facebook in the last decade or so, Chances are it went through a product or team led by either my guest, David Smidra, or myself in one way or another. For more than a decade, David has been at the forefront of assuring that tech platforms deliver personalized, high quality news by leading humans in the loop, journalists who bridge the gaps between editorial quality, product and audience development, and algorithmic design. And for a brief, but ultimately devastating moment from 2014-16, I led a similar team at Facebook. David grew up in Detroit, attended Kenyon College, UVA, and Stanford, and is, like me, a former fellow of the program now called the Media Transformation Challenge. He's a one-time harvard Neiman Fellow and current president of the Online News Association's Board of Directors. This week, David shares how his parents' orientation towards building community an early love of math and ambition to author the great American novel informed his eventual roles at two of the biggest tech platforms on Earth. We talk about our shared, often fraught experiences as journalists inside tech companies, including a discussion about Facebook's trending news fiasco, my very public, very painful brush with front-page bias allegations and congressional inquiry. And yes, we hear firsthand what it was like for David when Elon Musk showed up at Twitter and wrecked havoc at his place of now former employee. Throughout this lively, lovely discussion, David is unceasingly positive and unyieldingly optimistic, which is a pretty nice place to start a new year. Is there a moment that you can share from like the worst moment in the last weeks? What experience you leveraged to manage through it? What did you call on?
1: When it looked like the must acquisition was going to go through. And at the same time, you know, my team and the larger team that I was part of, we're trying to plan for 2023. Like, you know, from working in a corporation, it's like Q4 is all about Annual planning. Yep. Well, there are a few things that happen usually at the end of the year in a big company. You know, one is you hopefully launch all the stuff you've been trying to launch by the end of the year. You also try to celebrate the work that you've done and do an accounting of all of the team's achievements because, you know, partly you need to report up. This yeah. is what we did. And the other part of it is you you want to celebrate and acknowledge your team's effort. Yeah. And sure. so you do that accounting work. And so we're in the midst of doing that. And then you're also trying to plan for the next year. So all these things were happening in October at the same time that this huge company level drama was playing out. Yeah. That was probably one of the hardest moments. And this is why I paused because I'm not sure this reflects that it it really got me down or that it was super challenging. Cause I thought it was one instance where my team and I did the right thing, mm. which was it was basically a fight, flight or freeze yeah, type of moment. Totally. A lot of people around us, I think, were freezing. Like let's just sit still and just wait for this to pass. and We'll figure out what happens with the external drama, and then we'll make our moves. And I wouldn't call it a fight response, but I was like, we haven't all met in person yeah. for a year and a half. Like I built this team, let's all convene in New York and let's bring in the rest of the curation team who's based in New York. I didn't say this kind of publicly, but in my mind, I was thinking, this is either gonna be a really important meeting for us and productive week to get together and figure out the next year, or it's going to be a farewell party. Yeah. And either one of those are going to be fine. It ended up being exactly that. This is like the week of October 24th, the week that Musk actually acquired wow. the company. Yeah. And we're all in New York and we're figuring out, here's what our 2023 plan is going to be. And it was just so invigorating and so energizing to finally be with each other in person everyone else around us at a company level was in that flee or freeze response. Yeah. And we weren't quite in a fight response. It wasn't like adversarial, but it was like, let's just make the best of it. Yeah. And that turned out to be like probably one of the most resilient moments I think we had as a team. And it, and, and it got us through then the drama of what followed, Yeah, you know, the shock of uh, the acquisition itself and the way that it's played out. And there are a lot of things that just... Yeah. I can't say yet because I'm still an employee technically, (laughs) but there, um, a lot of the way it played out that was jarring, but we had that foundation of having come together and it got us through that period.
0: Yeah. 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 It's something I, I suspect we'll touch on throughout, which is this idea of, I mean, it's in your CV as it were, right? This idea of community. And it was evident from the outside, by the way, Just following along on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn in particular, the degree to which that you were being present virtually with your reports and others in your affected community. And I love that you identified, it's so sophisticated to me that you identified that y'all were in fight, flight, freeze or appease at a similar experience right after Trending had blown up in my face. The election had, I think, blown up in Facebook's face and I had just started launching the Facebook Journalism Project globally. So I had just begun traveling like crazy, you know, like Asia, Europe, all over America. And I went to an executive coach who I'd used for years and I said, man, I got to get out of here. And he goes, sounds (laughs) like you're in fight or flight. And I was like, oh, does that apply? It didn't even occur to me. (laughs) Like I was like, but that's animals, you know, and soldiers. The curation team at Twitter
1: grew steadily from about 2015 all the way until we were laid off a few weeks ago. And in contrast, my time at Google was all in doing this type of work was always a fight, flight, or freeze situation mm-hmm. it was always laboring and fighting to get a seat at the table to get resources to justify our existence to justify the legitimacy of the discipline that we were trying to yeah. represent of of understanding content and how that can be integrated in, in a tech platform and so i think part of the reason i was able to raise my hand and, and say hey everyone let's go to new york and let's meet up is because i had been brought up and cultivated for 10 years, 10 plus years at Google in that environment. And so that's why I say it wasn't quite a fighting response, although yeah. technically it probably was, but it was more like I could get a little bit faster to next steps and agency yeah. that, of what we could control than some of my peers might've been able to, who had been at Twitter for a while. And this is not to degradate them at all. I mean, this is just kind of we're all a product of our environment to a large extent. And so the environment in which curation had been had been steady growth, steady expansion. There had probably been, I'm sure a number of times of like the team facing existential threat, but it was such a large team that there was probably an insulation and a community there that they didn't all feel it in their bones the way that I had felt it at Google for like 10 years. Yeah, It kind of got me to that place faster and maybe from the outside, it looked healthier. But it's still, you know, uh, internally, you're still going through all of that tumult.
0: You were ahead of me on this. I don't even think I thought of those dynamics as something that was at play as a human adult. I mean, I I just was so busy grinding and trying to just survive and, and achieve and keep the mortgage and the rent and keep some sense of personal achievement and all these sort of other metrics. That I woke up last summer after I left going, what just happened? And, and and I've been piecing it together ever since. Tell me a little bit about growing up in Detroit.
1: We grew up in the city and my parents are dyed in the wool, Kennedy Democrats, yeah. you know, really believed in the dream of making good in the world and doing good in the world. And so that led them to their careers and that led them to their choices. They made, they could have moved any number of times out of the city and kind of join the white flight phenomenon. right? And they said, we have find more value in staying here and building a community. And, and they did. And so my dad worked uh, initially in law enforcement and then moved into kind of city government and philanthropy. And my mom worked in education. She was uh, eventually rose to be like the president of a community college system. Oh. And so I had two parents who were very mission driven in their careers and we lived in the city and, Those were things that then caused all sorts of other second and third order effects and benefits that I realize now as an adult, but that I didn't sense or feel from a lot of my peer group. It was really just a very different and unique environment.
0: I think people must read Rust Belt and especially late 80s, early 90s, like somehow it was over, right? As opposed to- So talk about how your experience was different from what the sort of modern perception might be
1: my grade school uh, you know a uh, catholic grade school in detroit the enrollment number steadily went down year after year you know from when i was in kindergarten to when i graduated from eighth grade mm. it, it you know probably was a third of its enrollment size so there is this feeling of you can really see like okay this the city is kind of losing its youth or a little bit neighborhoods you know you would see houses just kind of eventually get abandoned and then just kind of not be yeah. tended anymore and so the block that i lived on You know, there's a phenomenon certain by the time I got into high school where it's like the neighbors who had stayed were taking care of the other abandoned houses, like mowing the lawns and keeping the upkeep, you know, to just to ensure, like to put up a good presentation so that the street didn't look to run down and invite elements of crime or anything. And um, I think there's, that's really fascinating to me because there are two sides of that. It's like one, okay, undeniably the city is losing population. It's losing resources. It's losing The economy is shrinking, but on the other side, the community that's here is making important decisions and is kind of taking responsibility and accountability for, for itself and kind of seeing both sides of it. I think from the outside, you only saw the demographics. You only saw the numbers, you know, shrinking population, shrinking economy, businesses leaving the city and so on. But from the inside, you know, you feel the community.
0: What happened at the dinner table? with you and your folks and your brother? Like what were the topics?
1: Some of my earliest memories are of my parents talking about work, but not like the work that that they did so much as the relationships that they had with their coworkers. Like they'd be sharing funny anecdotes that had happened in the coffee room or something like that, or uh, things that were happening around the city. So there was like a continuation of them sharing what their lives were like so that my brother and I kind of got to see that. It was never, yeah. it was very rarely that, their day lives were off limits to us.
0: And talk to me a little bit about your experience at the University of Detroit Jesuit High School.
1: I'll preface all this by saying I am atheist right now. I'm not a practicing, you know, Catholic in any way. Um, and so at the same time, I can look back at that period and appreciate yeah. the good I got from it. They kind of came from their framework or their, the atmosphere that, that Jesuit schools tend to create. So it's very much educationally centered. The founder of the Jesuits, Ignatius. Yep. you know the story goes that he he had a severe either as like battle wounds or a sickness. He was basically laid up for months, and excruciating physical pain, and developed what came to be known as the Spiritual Exercises, and it was like a series of questions he asked himself to catalyze his own spiritual development and his understanding, and that became kind of like the foundation for them, how the Jesuits approach education. So there's a there's a lot of reflection that they yeah, bring to it gotcha. combined with study, erudite gathering of knowledge. And so I think those forces then create like just a really strong environment for especially a young person to learn in. The other parts of it though, kind of the more entertaining, Jesuits tend to be big personalities. Like the, the ones that I encountered at least, like they're, they kind of tend to be charismatic They will, it's funny. Like when I got as a 14 year old, I get to high school and the priests are cursing at me. They're like, they're profane, but they're funny. Like the way that they're cursed. It's just like it was not a type of Catholic priest I'd encountered before.
0: Incongruous, yeah.
1: Incongruous, totally. And there's also like this kind of fierce devotion to developing you. Even when they're cursing at you, it's kind of like they're chewing you out for a reason. And that reason is making you better somehow. And so you feel that for four years from age 14 yeah. to 18, and you kind of can't help it be shaped by that.
0: What was your sort of vision as you approach graduation? Were you always interested in, in the press and the media?
1: I can look back now and maybe see some trends or some early seeds, but I won't claim that I had any inkling of that, any awareness of that. I was actually very much into math. And this was one of the first lessons I had in the importance of a good teacher and the consequences of having a bad teacher. I got to junior year, which just for me, that's when all the hormones of teenage dumb kind of like <laughs> co- totally <laughs> fell on me and I didn't know yeah. what to do. And, and so I was going through a tough time and I had a bad teacher. I had a bad trigonometry teacher who, um, he called me a dumb shit in class in front of others. Ooh, not and, and it was like, I was pretty clearly struggling at that time. And that was the flip side of it. He was a lay teacher, by the way. He wasn't a Jesuit priest. He felt some license to like really call me out. Mm-hmm. And that just destroyed me for the most of the rest of that year. And it also destroyed my interest in math and I was probably on a track to go to AP calc and you know maybe down the line engineering, who knows. But I totally diverted. I had always been a reader. I totally diverted all of my efforts. I had a great English teacher at the time. Yeah, So that then put me on a path of um, pursuing as a friend jokingly called it at the time, being a man of letters. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And and just just kind of funneled all of my efforts into reading and literature and all of that. And I just, I actively, every time I I tried to approach that space of math, science, if you can call it STEM today, I guess, it was traumatic. I just Mm -hmm. like closed up. I said, I'm not gonna be interested in this. I hate it. And I just only actively pursued anything that had nothing to do with numbers and figures.
0: I'm 51. So the fact that I'm still wrestling with stuff that happened when I was 10, 11, 12, 15, 16 is surprising. But then I go to Spielberg's new movie and it's totally him wrestling with shit that happened when he was 10, 11, <laughs> yes. 12, 14, 15, and he's 70, whatever. Yes, and yes. I hear you say that. And I think it just is like a fundamental of how we grow and develop, particularly if it happens at a time like that when you're just like a open wound, you're so tender and sensitive, right? Because you're just kind of blooming, like that's just such a drag, but it's so demonstrative of how potent, you know, those kind of things can be at that age.
1: And, and, you know, you try to have the grace of looking back and trying to understand it through his eyes or like, maybe he was trying to motivate me, but he just did it wrong. Maybe he's having a bad day. You know, you make peace with it, but in the moment, you don't have the tools yet to do that. It's this really important element of intention doesn't matter. You know, people always claim when they're called out, it's like, Oh, but that wasn't my intention. I was like, well, your intention has absolutely no bearing on the cortisone rush that I got because I got, I had such a reaction that was just biochemical. Right. And we need to work this out. In my mind, the coda of the story is that I did the work. I learned what he was trying to teach me. I did it independently of him. You know, I found other ways I got like peers to help me or whatever. And so i I finished the year and I kind of turned around like a D plus C minus performance into like a B plus by the end of the year. And he complimented my mom and like the final parent teacher conference. He's like, I know he's had a tough year and I'm really proud of him for doing what he's done. Yeah. And at the time I'm like too little, too late, man. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there was that lesson of like kind of pulling myself up and yeah. doing this and finding another way that I'm interested in something. I can still achieve it or execute it by finding other resources. And that's a really important lesson too. Yeah. And that's something, as I say it out loud, I really had to come back to a lot over the past 10 to 15 years that when there is a infrastructure in place for most people to do their job or achieve what they're supposed to achieve, and there's not an infrastructure for you, what are you going to do?
0: Yeah.
1: Like, how are you still going to get it done? I think all of us who've worked in content at tech platforms, that's our story how are we going to find those resources how are we going to partner together how are we going to find you know some third or fourth way to do this in an unconventional way that is outside of you know the conventional path has been built up for everyone else
0: yeah i just assumed that that was everybody in tech but my experience for almost 8 years there was it was always all of those things there was no clear path for anything at all it was all invention every day luckily i have a certain capacity for it but it was flummoxing so often And the pace with which one was expected to problem solve. So I'm interested that you point out that you suggest that it's the intersection of content and tech, not just a tech thing. Do you think that's right? Or do do you think maybe just because we came from a different world, because you were, if you'll forgive me, combining words and math, as opposed to just math and engineering, you know, it was a little bit harder for the organizations to reconcile or support or make sense of.
1: I hear what you're saying that there's, especially at some tech companies, there's a culture of like, let's all experiment and innovate and, you know, break shit or f- yeah. create new shit all the time. I'm trying to call out that like, if you're a product manager or you're a UX designer, there is a formal training you have had. Right, right. There right, is a formal right, career right. path that is laid out in front of you that is probably analogous to the local newspaper reporter starting out at the local paper, going to the regional, going to the Times, the Post, or the Journal. There's a path and a process ahead of you. And in tech, if you try to take the content person and put them in the tech infrastructure in those paths, they don't apply. Same as if you took like an engineer and dropped them into the newsroom of the New York Times in 1998, there wasn't really a path for them either. That's the genesis of ONA.
0: You almost just helped me un- unlock you know, some answers for some of the last eight years, frankly, because it was a head scratcher from the word go. And I guess that's part of it, right? There was no clear path anywhere. In fact, nobody really wanted to hear anything from me. They just kind of wanted me to be an algorithm. <laughs> yes. You know, and, yes, and, yes. and same with all the people, which is why trending ended up blowing up is because nobody was being treated like a person. 100%. Well, let's get you to college, right? So you go to college, 180 miles, Southeast-ish, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what were you thinking when you got there, when you got to Kenyon?
1: I'm still in a headspace of, I'm going to be an English professor or a famous novelist or something. Kenyan has this like rich history of producing English majors and novelists and so on. And so uh, it's also like in this bucolic setting on a hill in central Northeastern Ohio. It felt at the time like, okay, I grew up in the city. I grew up in a highly diverse city. By the time I graduated eighth grade and high school, I was in like the racial minority of both schools. So this is a totally different context for me to to go to. And that's what I was looking for. I was, it's funny. I I looked at all the other colleges I looked at were in cities. They're like Northwestern, BC, American U. I'm like, all right, I'm going to just continue this urban educational track that I'm on. And then my advisor pushed me to consider Kenyan. And he knew me better than I knew myself as a good advisor does. I got in there and I visited and I was like, well, this place is amazing. And it feels like another country. Also won't lie. The other part of it was basketball was, um, all those other schools are division one. I. I might've had an outside chance to be a walk-on at some of those schools. If the timing was right, um, if they needed like an undersized power forward to beat up and practice, then I yeah, maybe could have yeah, yeah. walked onto those schools. But, um, at Kenyon college, I could play four years uh, in division three. And so I chose that. And that was the other element as well.
0: You must've exited still moving in that direction. Cause you went for your master's, right?
1: I was an English major from day one at yeah. Kenyon. I was interested in sociology as well. That was kind of intriguing to me to see, I kind of come back to how communities work. That was maybe one of the early signs that I'm a systemic thinker. Mm. You go into college, you are know, like I'm gonna be an English major. I'm gonna sell my first novel by the time I graduate. Sure. I'm gonna average 23 points on the basketball team. Of course, now that happens. But I did graduate and thought like, well, I'll go to Virginia and kind of play out this English literature track for an, a while and maybe get a PhD in that direction.
0: And who were your writers who lit you up?
1: Books I remember reading like in a day because they, yeah. they just, they, they grabbed my shirt and would not let go would be uh, Sun Also Rises. Uh-huh. Um, again, as cliche as it is, but I just remember sitting in the library reading that all night. Yeah. Sula by Toni Morrison. Ah. Um, and in both of those, there's just like such an economy of language yet depth of storytelling. When I read Sula at the time and, and um, you know a lot of Morrison's work, I came across an interview where she talked about how she taught at Princeton and that one of her maxims was, you shouldn't have to put an adverb to describe how someone spoke. It should be so well-written that you read the dialogue and you just feel how they are speaking. That idea of the language carrying the description within it so you don't need to describe it was such a great lesson.
0: I'm sure this stuff informed your work down the road. 100%.
1: 100%. It reflects like an established discipline and methodology of how to think this way and how to express thoughts successfully in a way that resonates. And bringing that context or that approach into a tech environment and a tech company where everything is in code, yeah, it's kind of telegraphing ahead. When I did MTC, one of the first and most important insights that Doug Smith gave me was he said, David, your challenge is all about finding a common language. Mm-hmm. The engineers speak one language, you speak another. Yeah. You have to find the common language and you probably have to develop it yourself. And it's all about, you know, whether was at high school with that one good English teacher at Kenyon, UVA, even when I went to Stanford for journalism, it's all about developing that ability that is not a soft skill. It's not some sort of Additional or bonus skill on top of the more legitimate STEM skills. Yeah. Right. But that's a hard argument to make if you just say it. Nothing turns off an audience more if you're like, I'm the expert. I know how to do this. Well, you can't say that. Right. No one's going to, no one's going to buy what you're saying. You have to demonstrate it and you have to show them how your skills complementing with their skills can produce something better.
0: And it's interesting because you take me right back to my, Sophomore year when I started at the Newhouse School and I was a dual major and on one side of the road, I was an English textual studies major. And on the other side, I was a journalism major. And so in the English side, language was slippery and I could kind of relish this poetry and the sort of like slipperiness of language. But then on the other side, it was like very rigorous, and a crash and an accident were notably different things, right? And those word choices mattered. The specificity of language and the rigor of the work is not like a nice to have, it's a fundamental.
1: There's a perception of the study of literature that is like, oh, it's all in the air or not concrete. Yeah. I would argue that it's by getting so rigorous and so specific. And so concrete in your language that you get to a place where you can right. express something that is profound and that resonates. There's a difference between kind of picturing like the coffee house uh, poet in a yeah. black trench coat who's smoking a cigarette and says a bunch of bullshit, yeah, versus like Tony Morrison or Tobias Wolf or Hemingway in the Sun Also Rises. There's an economy of language that comes from a rigor yeah. that produces something that might only be 180 pages long, but has a resonance and a depth of meaning. It comes from that, that training and that discipline of understanding how language works. The PMs are just like, give us the labels that go in the product or give us the strings or whatever. And it's like, okay, wait a minute, I can give you some junk right now, or we can go through our process and I can give you what will make the product better. And you know, it took me a while to kind of learn the lesson uh, and it takes some time to kind of build credibility to say like, okay, if you let us do our process, we'll give you a better output.
0: Yeah. Not to make this about my confessions, but I thought about this as I prep for you. I don't think I ever got my feet down. I don't think I ever found a common language. I think because I am so uncomfortable with the math and sciences, with math and the sciences that I almost froze in some of those tough engineering or PM conversations, especially with the engineers where I'd be like, I don't know what they're talking about. And I re- overly relied on the team in place and the stuff that I reviewed made sense, but I think I was reading it more the, more the poet, but I don't think I knew the risk. I don't think it was possible to know the risk, at least at that point, you know, in 2014. Right. <laughs> there weren't even that many people looking at trending mathematically. Like it was hundreds of thousands of people versus two and a half billion people on the platform. So virtually nobody looked at it, but it was the most important nobodies. It was all journalists, you know what I mean? Yes,
1: and that by the way is Twitter, so right. yes. Yeah, totally. <laughs>
0: I have a sense there's this wilderness years here, like maybe literally and maybe conceptually, but there's also often, I think, wilderness years in that early twenties anyway, right? Before you kind of get your feet down.
1: So I graduated from Virginia with a master's and I I kind of knew by that point, like, I don't want to get a PhD. Like there's just another five to six years of schooling and kind of like self-flagellating labor to write a dissertation that nobody's going to read. Like, that's just not the life for me. So I was like, okay, I at this point I started to shift mentally. Like I want to be a magazine editor. Oh, I want to be okay. like a book editor or something you know, kind of get into the business of doing this work. And of course everyone has that same revelation on who's on that track. So like editorial assistants are a dime a dozen, almost literally in publishing. Yeah. And, and at that time, the only job we could find was as a marketing assistant at Shambhala publications in Boston. I did that. And that was after like a year and a half of unemployment slash underemployment trying to like, uh, patched together some sort of living. And so Shambhala was my first full-time job and then kind of rose in a year and a half, two years to being a publicist there, which on the one hand is like, oh, I'm actually like my revenue exceed my expenses right now as a young adult. That's kind of exciting. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, what I've had to do to get there is shill on behalf of books and writers that, who I probably haven't even read the book. And that kind of felt dirty in me. Yeah. yeah. And it also—it's like I was talking to you know at the time, early mid two thousands, there was still a pretty good ecosystem of book reviewers who worked at newspapers or magazines. Yeah. And I would talk to them, and they often had journalist backgrounds. So as I'm trying to shill a writer, I'm on the wrong side of the phone, man. That's such a cooler job. And so that set me on this path of trying to explore graduate school for um, to be a journalist. So I did some more freelancing for the Globe to kind of get some clips. Uh, to do that. And to kind of like justify that, that application, if you want to be a journalist, you can just be a journalist. You can start writing, you can build up that career in terms of doing clips. If you're willing to do it, to hustle. Yeah, I was not willing to hustle. <laughs> I was like, I found a lot more comfort in like, let me go study this for a year or two, Yeah, learn how the industry works. And at the time I thought that will pay off in terms of like long-term career viability. Looking back, I'm like, no, that's just where my brain is. Like I like understanding how systems function Yeah. and going to journalism school helped me understand how media functions as a system. Yeah. That's kind of what set me on that path. So I thought like, okay, I'll go to Stanford and within two or three years, I'll be like a staff editor at the Atlantic or the New Yorker or something. I remember being like four to six weeks into the school year and I'm taking like this beat reporting course, learning how to report like a city council meeting. And I'm pulling my hair out. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this is so dry. This is so dull, so far away from where I want to be. And then I realized as I started doing the work and actually going to meetings and reporting and doing those fundamental stories, that's actually the foundation. That's again, kind of analogous to the rigor of good writing is the rigor of good reporting and talking to people as opposed to like sitting back and calling the shots as an editor. And by the way, the best editors have that background too, of really rigorous reporting or really rigorous attention to detail. And so- while it's initially seemed dry or so far afield from where I wanted to go, that foundation of public issues reporting and understanding how to do that job of talking to people and holding your assumptions back and following where the story takes you, that gave me the foundation for so much other work. After a year as a local reporter at the Haffin Bay Review, um, where again, I just kind of like did that work and learned the fundamentals. You know, so one thing that just has to be acknowledged it's an economically unsustainable job. Like I just could not, I was, I think I was paid 15 bucks an hour living in Silicon Valley in 2008. Oof. There's no way. Yeah. And I'm already tapped out from two different yeah, rounds of grad yeah, school. Yeah. You know, it's not woe is me. It's just pointing out like the, the facts of the matter, like local reporting jobs uh, from about 2000 on 1990 on who knows are just fundamentally unsustainable for the, for the journalist. And here's Google who's like, hey, yeah. we have this, this feature that we want to staff journalists to help run, and we'll pay you 35 an hour. Yeah, That was a no-brainer. I thought about it for 30 seconds. And again, it's kind of, but looking back on it, it was a better move for me because being inside Google at, at that time to get a front row seat to how tech was viewing the media and how tech was still developing as a media channel in its own right yeah. was just totally invaluable.
0: And for you to help inform that, man, because I mean, you had a, I don't know what it felt like to you, but from my vantage point, it's damn near a front row seat.
1: Totally, totally. So I joined as a contractor, which is important. We can yeah, talk about that. Yeah, because I know that culture. Tech loves or has loved to employ content people as contractors. And so I was—I joined a small team of contractors working on this one feature that's like went defunct within a year or so. Yeah. But it got me in the door at Google News. And then I eventually became a full-time employee as the only surviving member of that team, everyone else got laid off or just found other stuff. And at that time, I believe I was the first and only reporter and journalism school graduate to work on Google News. And by that point, Google News was seven years old, eight years old. It had all been engineers, PMs, UX designers with no background in news.
0: Just the idea of that, right? Like how risky is that? I mean, if you think about it, right. I mean, for who, for, for, for them or for me? (laughs) Yeah, man. To be developing a product that has, I mean, I, I, I I was there. I get it. I mean, I was at Facebook, a Facebook version of that. there were like, I don't know, six of us when I got there, you know? So I get it, but Oh God, the hubris implied to me is bananas. I guess if you're disrupting and you're reinventing, you don't necessarily want those stakeholders at the table, but they must've got hip to it because there you were.
1: It's not like I was employed as like the first journalist. I yeah. was employed as someone on their operations team to like answer, you know, publisher tickets or something right, like that, right, right? Right, um, right? But it was...
0: <laughs> tickets for like... 200, Benjamin. There you go, there's one of them. <laughs>
1: At the time, I had a chip on my shoulder and I was like, you guys don't know what you're doing. We should have 50 journalists working on this product. You know, sometimes I'd say that out loud in yeah. some moments and other times I'd mostly just keep it to myself. By I had that chip on my shoulder And now I try to look back on it like if I was like a 27-year-old engineer who, by virtue of writing some code with a few, like a dozen or two dozen other engineers, made this product that got tens of millions of views and users every day and was part of this enormous behemoth that was like taking over the internet, I'm not sure it would occur to me to go spend a ton of money to employ 50 journalists or even five. And I think that was kind of the story at least of Google. And as I kind of stay there longer, the senior leadership all kind of reflected that, that trajectory. It was like, okay, if you're by 2015, 2017, if you're like a senior VP of engineering at Google, and you've never had to pay attention to content because frankly, the business didn't require it. The business grew regardless. Yeah. I try to look at it with some understanding through their eyes that like, I'm not sure I would have leapt to the conclusion that we should employ a bunch of content people until it started to cause me pain. Yeah, And that I think is the story of like 2016 to 2020. Yeah, Finally, engineering and product executives at platforms started to feel the pain that came from ignoring this whole discipline of what content is, how you can tell good content from bad content, and how you can actually supercharge your product development by paying attention to content and integrating that with, with your tech staff. And that's where you start to speak their language. Cause they're like, okay, I I wanna get out of this space. If again, if you're like a senior VP at Google or Facebook or Twitter, you wanna get out of the space of, of uh, this is a headache, you yeah. know, and I have to pay attention to this because it, it creates risk. And you wanna get into a space of, um, oh, if I employ content people and they work well with my engineering staff, then we can build cooler shit. Yeah. And that's a better sell.
0: A quick interruption to ask for your help. We're at 17% of our friends and neighbors fundraising goal with just 19 days to go. And so if you haven't yet, please visit fndoc.com to help us finish this vital, timely documentary about how trauma and chronic stress impacts ourselves, each other and our civic fabric your donation will help us fund final shoots, license footage, produce graphics and animation, and enable us to deliver a rough cut to film festivals this spring. Please donate to fnndoc.com right now. Thanks, and back to our interview. So give us an example of how humans amplify or accelerate or supercharge, that was your word, the product development process.
1: By the end of my time at Google, I had built up this team of people trained as journalists who had worked as journalists. And the projects we were doing at that point were, we were essentially breaking down for the engineers and PMs. Here are the elements of a news article. Here are the different classes of news articles, right? Breaking news versus developing news versus long form or enterprise investigative stories versus you know different types of feature articles, investigative yeah. versus interviews or profiles, and here are the attributes of them. And we were essentially able to define different classes of news content, the attributes of those classes that engineers could then start to translate into code. They could start to identify, oh, we never knew or realized that article after article about the same story, the B matter, the section below, like the last third of the article, tends to be the same. Yeah. And we can start to pick up a signal of articles where the B matter hasn't changed. There hasn't been a new development. You could start to give engineers information that would help them develop better algorithms and better classifiers. And then once they're able to say, oh, these articles are uniquely all about this ongoing story, but they're a fresh take on that story. And they've been able to detect that at the level of code as opposed to employing 50 or 100 or 1,000 people to read all those articles. Yeah. Then we started to do some cool stuff. There's one feature that launched in Google News. It's called Beyond the Headlines. And it's where someone on my team did that work of being able to describe to an engineer, here are the different attributes of different types of articles. And we can create this module or this section on Google News that can you know, not give you the AP story from six hours ago. That's about the latest half event or quarter event in that yeah, ongoing story. yeah. yeah but here is the in-depth look at that story. And then that has a value, right? And you can create a feature around that that has a value that you can, you can present to users.
0: It looks like there was an evolution. You did partner-facing work, but then pivoted towards curation.
1: That's right, yeah. So after you know my contractor days and then working on the operations team at Google, Google News, supporting publishers at scale, kind of like mid to long-term, long-tail publishers, there was a partnerships team that focused on the head partners, right? Tier one, tier one A. There's more language for the bingo card. Yeah. I was and so- say tier, totally on the bingo card. <laughs> I ended up being the first of three or four different people who went on that track. So of like the operations team was kind of like the minor leagues or the farm team. Yeah. And then the partnerships team was like the majors. And so I joined that team. And my motivation there was I just wanted to talk to news organizations again. Yeah, and talked to them face-to-face. And I knew our products well enough by then that I could translate them to publishers. And I could then translate what the publishers are saying back to our product teams. So that's what that role fundamentally was.
0: And did you see the imperative to improve curation and the relationship between journalists and content and PMs and engineers, or were you pressed into action?
1: Well, I mean, the answer can be both. The formal contours of the job were like, manage these publishers so they don't abandon the platform, make yeah. them happy. Yeah. And at the same time, convey their feedback in a way that made our products better. So that was like the fundamental thrust of that job. But in doing that, you just can't help but notice like oh, our products have these shortcomings. Right, And it's like, if we just had some people doing this or some people doing that, we could just run faster. We could build cooler stuff. I worked for a few years on a news product within Google Play. It was called Google Play Newsstand. Because we were in Google Play, we could do hands-on curation. And I started that team. So I started hiring. I was only allowed to hire contractors. I hired contractors to start curating for different regions and languages of the world. We had been able to do hands-on curation of like picking articles to send as notifications, creating topics in the app that you could subscribe to and follow, could add to your library, picking collections of featured articles. There'd just be good reads for that day. So we were doing all the fundamental curation moves that were driving up audience engagement and so on. And we were bringing that discipline to it that I was very lucky. My manager at the time an engineering director, he never said this explicitly, but it was more or less like, I don't care how you do it. Just get it done. So the graphs go up right. and, <laughs> and, and our team was able to do that. Then we shifted over. We had a restructuring. we basically got put into search to become the new Google news team. And that's where the friction really increased. That was our existential threat moment because Google search, you don't put your hands on content. You are not allowed to curate because it's all algorithms. And by the way, which is belies the truth right, because there are humans course. all over the system. Yeah. But in terms of, Taking human hands and moving content around right at the output, at the moment of serving content to the user, that was totally awfulness. Right, right. Our team was basically threatened because our entire bread and butter was curate content for the purpose of audience engagement and retention. And now we're not allowed to do this fundamental thing. And it took me a while to learn some language of what we do creates value, but it's not why we're valuable. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to do these activities that created value. But that wasn't why we were valuable. We were valuable because we understood news content at a, at a deeper level and with a sophistication that the rest of our team didn't. That's around the time that I joined MTC because I started to sense like, if I don't figure this out, how to rechannel this value into some other way, yeah. my team's going to get broken apart. I'm going to get laid off, et cetera.
0: Yeah. You'd be deprecated as we would say. Deprecated, turned down, <laughs> sunsetted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always do this, dude, because I find (laughs) the first 20 years end up informing the next 20. If you're being honest, you know? Totally. And
1: I've been, honestly, like, I've been looking forward to this conversation so much. Cool. I think you and I both have, honestly, this experience that maybe a half dozen people have of running teams in these platforms that are doing, have done this work. And it's so rare that we've had a chance to talk to each other.
0: I don't know that I've ever talked about it, David, to be honest. Not with, certainly not with anybody who knows anything about it. I barely post mortemed it when trending blew up. I've never talked to anybody who does it before. (laughs) Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, the fact that you couldn't even have a space in which to post-mortem it, I think speaks to the lack of structures or support for this type of work in tech. An engineer, if they do... A bad launch. There's a formal postmortem process. Right. They have to write a document. That's a template. They have to go to like a postmortem meeting, like a review board, basically. There's nothing like that for people who. At least there wasn't when we were doing this. There's nothing like that in content for tech. It was this entirely esoteric space that, on their worst days, the most empowered engineers did not want to understand or care about. Right. Um, but on the best days, I often found the sweet spot was the mid-level engineer. Mm. The person who had written the code and knew how the product worked, but now they had a certain level of authority and freedom to make moves that they could be a co-collaborator with, and they understood the value of what we were doing. They basically, you know, to kind of oversimplify it, they understood the gaps in the code and how we could fill them, and they were not afraid to do it because, and then they could tell a story to their engineering managers. Oh, here's how we did it. We launched this product and there was a team over here that contributed. Let's give my high five, yep, but like back yep. to the product. And that was fine with me for a while. It was like, okay, at least we are, we found our way to contribute.
0: Oh man. I wish I I knew you better in 2016. What did trending blowing up look like from the outside? Like, what did you see when we launched trending? I was told to stand in the back of the room and not tell anybody what I did. Yes. I mean, for a guy who stood in front of MTV news and when a politician came through or an executive from somewhere else or ad sales leads or anything, I was out front explaining what we do. I was like, what? So it was like, you know, secrets create shame, right? You know, we were shamed, dude. And then it blew up.
1: That resonates so deep. I I love the phrase that secrets cause shame because that's basically if I were writing a book about kind of this period or this 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 whole phenomenon, frankly, in tech from like 2015 to 2020 of big platforms starting to grapple with, because they're forced to, how to integrate content thinking into their products, there would be a chapter called Secrets Create Shame, mm-hmm. because I feel like that just encapsulates the mindset that was just pervasive across the industry. So you asked what, what trending looked like from the outside. Yeah, I think if you put this on a timeline, it's really uh, instructive. So January 2015, I get that new job to start an editorial team for Google Play Newsstand. Uh, I believe, was it, October?
0: God, we really are like separated at birth.
1: (laughs) I think like October 2015, at the time it was called Project Lightning at Twitter, which became the Moments curation team they launched. And they went public, and they went public, by the way, with a a website of standards and curation principles. That's right. Which was, I think, like a seminal moment. And that became something I always remembered in a skip ahead, which is probably why I ultimately ended up at Twitter. In between, I want to say, but help me out here, is when trending blew up.
0: It was 2016. It was the election year. It was the spring of 2016. In April.
1: April of 2016. So I started doing this work at Google Play Newsstand, which is... I mean, it was at Google, but the audience was much smaller, right? It's not, it wasn't like Facebook. It wasn't like, we had probably a decent sized audience, but it didn't have the media's attention on it.
0: Right, right.
1: And so that gave me a little bit of freedom to do editorial work and curation work. And I started gradually hiring a small staff to do that. And then Twitter comes out with their team and I started sending around their public website and their announcements to everyone who would listen, like, We should be doing this. We are doing this. We already are doing this, but it's our secret. Like we're not allowed to talk about it. And so that frustrated me, but that's what that happened. And then when I think there was media coverage or recognition before trending blew up that there were humans curating it.
0: Yeah, there was a leak in October, 2015.
1: And there was probably like some sort of, you know, uh, anodyne PR statement from Facebook that was like, oh, we have curators who do this or that. And they put it in some context of, you know, but it's the algorithm and we're driven by technological principles and so on and so forth. Correct. Yeah. And so, but again, I saw that. So I'm like, I see Twitter roll out and then I see Facebook's approach. And again, I keep sharing back to people like, look, this work is happening whether you want it to or not. This is now an organic thing that is happening on most large platforms, but the blowback I got from it was the higher-ups who eventually got those emails I was sending or got wind of them. were like, David, this is exactly why we mm. cannot be more public about it. Anyways, we kind of go through 2016. I'd say 2016 was a big year for us. We kept pushing up a lot of graphs up and to the right, so to speak. And our, our team kind of filled out and we found our footing and we were doing work. and We started to find engineers who were building tools for us that like helped us scale. So that was great. 2016 happens with the election, sends shockwaves throughout tech, and 2017, Google decides we're going to invest in news in a huge way. And that's when the Play Newsstand team became the new Google News team. Mm -hmm. And that's when that whole year of 2017 was just a dark year for me (laughs) because it was one by one, the features that we were tasked with managing were basically turned down. We couldn't do them anymore. The new Google News launched in spring of 2018, May 2018, and the sell of the new Google News was, it's your AI news assistant. Right, right. You know, this veneer of, it's all AI giving you the news that you want, and no acknowledgement of the human thinking and decision-making and judgment that goes into building the AI or to building the app. And so that's where my team you know, secrets cause shame. Yeah, That was our most shameful moment because that was our most secretive moment where we weren't even allowed by that point. We had been the play newsstand editorial team. We were no longer allowed to call ourselves editorial. Around that time, and I'm trying to argue for my team and lobby on behalf of just preservation of our team. I'm not even asking for headcount. I'm just like, look, this is what we've done in a newsstand context. This is what we could do in a Google news context. It's good because X, Y, and Z. On that deck, I had proposed calling us like the editorial strategy team. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to soften the name of our team. Yeah. And the VP of search who I presented it to at the time, who held all the cards, I had gone out to Mountain View, by the way, to yeah, present this. Sure. I show it to him. He instantly jumps on the word editorial. And like, we have this, you know, pretty fierce discussion for 20 minutes and then at the end, kind of one of those things you say at the end of a meeting, and you're like, all right, well, I'll send you the deck. You know, we can you know follow up later. And he says, No, David, do not send me this deck. I want you to print it out and burn it. I never want to see it again. Yeah. That was the reaction was yeah. doesn't want to see editorial as a word that exists in any deck. Because at that time, late 2017, early 2018, there is serious anxiety in tech about. CEOs and SVPs being called to testify in front of Congress about editorial bias creeping into the product.
0: Dude, I feel that so big, right? As trending blew up in April, my main effort for that half, (laughs) there you go. That's on the bingo card was to create cohesion across this disparate set of curators by trying to create the sense that there was an ecosystem of opportunity for us that was broader than trending. In other words, the editorial expertise that we had as journalists was applicable in eight or 10 or 12 outlets, as opposed to the one that we had kind of, was at the tip of the spear, which was trending. This is before trending blew up. So I tried to create a team and because they were contractors and you know, you have that dynamic as an FTE where you can only kind of manage the managers. I want to
1: push back if I can push on that for a second. Because I think this is really important while acknowledging that those were bad managers and they were doing, you know, bad things, right? They shouldn't be off the hook for that. They're doing that in an environment that Facebook created. For
0: they're sure. They're doing it in That's a structure,
1: right. Yeah. right? In a structure of incentives and value judgments around who do we compensate to do essential work and how do we compensate them?
0: But I'm just talking behavior, not expectations. Like they just weren't being kind. <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, but because they're vendors or contractors. Right then your hands are tied in terms of solving that, short of just terminating the contract with a vendor. And that's the way the large company, the tech company wants it. There were moments where I was managing some of my staff who I consider to be my team, but they're technically contractors. And as a manager, I wasn't allowed to do the things I, I should be doing to create a stronger team culture and coach them and so on because there were limits put on me in terms of how I spoke to them and and who I worked with to solve problems. And all of that, my my point is all of that flows from a value set in technology that although we grudgingly have to acknowledge that content work is essential work for the performance of our platform, we are not going to empower anyone who works on content in our staff. We're going to make them contractors or vendors. We're going to make them sit in a separate location from our engineers and PMs. We're going to give them different pay structures. We're going to give them different rules for how they manage their teams. And all of that builds on, again, the secrecy as well. Yeah. So it all creates this like unholy, awful storm of bad incentives and, and environmental forces that inevitably makes what happened on trending happen.
0: Yeah, it's like a toxicity that was just in the air. Yes. You know, And I don't know that anything could have undone it. And I'm not even sure how much, you know, it it was framed within the context of politics and right versus left, but I don't think it had much to do with that at all. And as it ends up, the dude who broke the story was pals with one of our curators.
1: (laughs) If it, it, honestly, Benjamin, if it
0: wasn't that
1: story within three months, another story would have come out because when the, when the environment is that toxic and that's through no fault of your own.
0: Oh, I'm not sure it wasn't through any, no fault of my own, just to own it. I think I was naive. I just don't think I had any idea, bro. I don't know what your experience was, but I had numerous assignments and trending was one. The other area I was working on, which was like an in-person partner center, which became Facebook Media Central. And, you know, we had all kinds of people come through to learn about the culture of Facebook and Instagram and onboard them and all that stuff and was very successful, was way more interesting to me. Because it was people talking to people about things that I found interesting, like how do we communicate our culture in person, you know, um, that sort of thing. I just own my kind of naivete, which seems hard to admit because, I mean, I wasn't a kid. I was in my early and mid forties, you know, it was traumatic. I mean, now that I know trauma and what trauma means and I can connect it with being a kid, it was so overwhelming. I I literally had to say to the lawyer, do I need to get, you know, a, a gold button suit and get ready to testify? I had no idea. I didn't breathe for like three weeks and every time i tried to catch my breath something else would happen do you know what i mean we war roomed for just three four weeks just literally physically uncomfortable i took xanax to fly at mtv news because i hated flying which connects to my parents divorce because they shuttled me back and forth all the time and i started breaking that xanax to fly into small bits so that i could just get into the office and make it through the day without feeling like i was gonna have a heart attack that's awful that's terrible. And, and in retrospect, you can just see, I mean, it was just like a, sl- and a slow decline, you know? And then you kind of fast forward to the pandemic when I'm about to launch this huge global program and we all think we're going to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I begin to see a real clear through line. So my question back to you is like, have you ever had an experience anything like that where shit was so sideways that you just thought you were going to hurl
1: all the time? Yeah, I'd say that that spring of 2018 through the summer, of 2018. So a couple of things happened. One was, so on the heels of, in my mind, Twitter getting it right and doubling down on work that needed to be done, setting like this positive example, I'm like, okay, it is possible to do it, I think, the right way. And then the other extreme is is what happened with trending, was blowing up in your life and, and that horror show. And then the lesson that the leaders at Google, who I worked with, took from the trending example was we need to shut this down. Right. So as opposed to-
0: Let's be more transparent.
1: Let's be more transparent. And and to his credit, there was one VP at Google who I think saw we saw it the same way, but he kind of sat outside product development. He was like, look, we want to write guidelines. If we're going to do this, we want to write guidelines that we don't have to release. But if they got leaked, we would be proud of what's right. There. Yeah, totally. And like, yes, that's the path I want to go. But in spring of 2018, summer of 2018, it was just all- Existential threats to our team, directives given to me to like, stop doing this feature, stop doing that feature, start to shut it down. Meanwhile, I've like ramped up my team in anticipation of bigger and better things. Yeah. So I have to message to them, oh yeah, we're still valued. But at the same time, we can't do these things anymore because nobody wants us to exist, yeah. which is a impossible message. And to own what I will own is I was just ill-equipped as a manager at that time to do it. And to to kind of learn that, like, you have to be a lot more honest with your team, especially in dark times. But that first half, first two thirds of 2018, at the same time, this is kind of the personal life creeping in. I was appointed to a three month grand jury in Suffolk County in Boston. And so I was actually reporting to a courthouse from April 1st through the end of June. Oh, wow. Five days a week to listen to cases of humans being horrible to other humans in the most violent ways. And that's traumatic. Yeah. And nothing really prepares you for that. The day wraps at three or 4 p.m., hustle off to the office and try to work until six or seven and keep that team going. And I did it all badly. It was terrible. That was probably the moment, again, kind of April through July, August of 2018, where I was like, this is just terrible. I just could not sustainably do it.
0: I wonder what your experience or perception is now, especially after this shit show that is your place of former employee in terms of like how we treat each other in a capitalist society around work. A
1: couple of things come to mind. One is at the end of uh, Moneyball when the uh, <laughs> John Henry character tells the Billy Bean character, the first ones over the wall always take it the worst. And I feel like we're the first over the wall. And so I think there's some of that at play. That's also why it's so critical, I think, that we talk to each other. You at Facebook, me at Google, I know there are teams at YouTube that did this back in the day and tried to do it 10 years earlier. Um, The the people who started the Twitter curation team. I'd be curious to talk to the people who started the Apple News curation team and Snapchat's own curation efforts. Like there is a community there of all of us who went over the wall first and some of us had support and some of us did not, we got trampled, but there are lessons there regardless. And so I think that's, that's one thing. I think the other thing that comes to mind is there was a payoff. I think both engineers and PMs and UX designers and executives and all of us who worked on content got better at how to work together.
0: Mm, mm -hmm.
1: And that hasn't necessarily played out at Twitter in the way of, um, the team staying on and continuing to do that work. But it's totally played out in terms of our network, in terms yeah. of our the sophistication of the work that we were able to do before we were let go, in terms of the way that products are developing. Like I'm looking at, maybe your Twitter feed has seen them too, but like different proposals of new types of Twitters that could be built. And all of them are focusing on trust and safety. Yeah, They're all open-minded to the idea of a content team, understanding, being an essential stakeholder in that development. Right. That was inconceivable 7 years ago. So I think it has played out it's against the backdrop of this tumultuous drama. I have no real insight into how Facebook is navigating this today or Meta is navigating this today, but I think there is a general recognition that this work is essential and that there's a there are better ways that we can work together. I think that's happening maybe on a micro level but it hasn't risen to become the narrative yet.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. Trending was handed over to operations and um, deprecated and then relaunched as Facebook News, which was staffed by FTEs, which was more transparent in the fact that there were humans and was more transparent about its guidelines. So it's not like they didn't apply the lessons learned to some degree to a incentivization and resourcing of or sharing of revenue. But that platform also seems, I mean, I don't know, Twitter too seems increasingly irrelevant gosh, it feels like a new day in a lot of ways.
1: It's definitely a new day. I, I tend to be, whether it's naivete or whatever, I tend to be optimistic about yeah, it. Yeah, Like, So I try to look at the, again, systemic thinking. I try to look at what's happened over the past five years. What's happened is somewhere between 500 and 1,000 people have been employed by platforms to do content-focused work, especially within news and to fight misinformation and disinformation. And while the majority of those hundreds up to 1,000 people have been laid off, or um, kind of set free, they develop those capabilities. So again, what they did created value, but it's not why they're valuable. If we keep talking to each other, we will find other ways to channel that value into other products and other platforms and other services. So I I ultimately have a faith in the long-term trend of we know how to do this work now. And we have colleagues on the other side of the technological aisle, so to speak, who know how to work with us and who value what we do that's gotta pay off. So to put it differently, I don't imagine you could launch a new platform today or run a successful platform and not employ some sort of content team.
0: Do you cultivate and or, or do you participate in any sort of the kind of discussion that you and I are having? Have you had these with other stakeholders?
1: Yeah, in, in different kind of individual flares, yes. I, um, I have started a, uh, a digital media curators Slack workspace my vision for that is to create this community and to get us talking to each other, because I think that will help supercharge all the next cool stuff that we could do.
0: I got to be thousand percent honest. I ran as far away from it as I could, dude. I think that's probably obvious to you, but if it's not, I'll say it because it, <laughs> it, it hurt bad. Yeah. It was really, it was the single most uncomfortable experience I've had in my work life, period, hands down, you know, and then I just started traveling all over the world. And in a lot of ways, I was given the remit of basically what's our newsgeist. <laughs> that's, what, yeah. that's what Campbell yeah. said to me. And I was like, wait, what, what, well, you can't be newsgeist because it's like the most genius idea ever, which is it's everything and nothing. And it's only what the audience wants it to be. Right. And so I did my best, but even that, that blew up, but I ran as far away from it as I could. I don't, I don't, I haven't talked about it this much since it happened. <laughs> you wow. know what I mean? Wow. It's a shame, I guess, pun intended. So I appreciate your optimism. And I also think you, you just had more success with it. You worked in it longer. You had a much better position at the table. I'm sure there are people still at Facebook that are more bullish and positive. I think I'm just pathologizing. MTC must've played some role in getting you to Twitter. At least it looks that way time-wise. If not, I don't mean actually, but conceptually, what was your transition or your, how did you get yourself to MTC and what was your challenge?
1: By the end of 2018, I'm running on fumes. I'm looking for a way to get out basically or to like try to like make sure my team has a soft landing in some way. But I was like, you know what? There's one more round. Like we can go. There's one more fight we can have. Like, it's funny. One thing that didn't come up is I was in my youth as a huge Rocky fan.
0: Uh, Like that's kind of been
1: my, (laughs) so if you can just go the distance, right? And I was like, we're we're only in the 13th round. We got another couple of rounds here. We can do it. And so 2019 was, I was able to focus my team on the projects that did add value that only we could do. And that started to gain some notice within the Google News organization. And then by the September meeting, the engineering director who had provided a ton of air cover for me and understood what I was doing, he left the company Mm. and I was not prepared for that. And so I had a new engineering manager who knew nothing about what my team had done. But I had nine or 10 months by that point of achievements that had been fueled by MTC. Mm. And I'd say like, if you ask the average person who is in the know, when the new manager came in, which team was probably most on the chopping block or mm. was most, it was probably our team. And then two, three months later, once he got to know what we were doing, we were probably the most secure team. Wow! And we were the only team whose remit expanded, whose wow. charter expanded. Yeah, yeah. So January, 2020, I'm like, this is it. Like we, you go back to the Rocky thing. Like we won the fight. We went the distance We're world champions. Like, let's go defend our title. And we start to, to go on that journey, like the next level of the S curve, so to speak at the top. And like, let's start the next one. And then the pandemic hit and that created tons of challenges for us as well as everyone. The pandemic probably kept me at Google another year, but then we finished 2020 and I started conversations in early 2021 with a few different people. And one of them was uh, the person who ran Twitter's curation team. And she was like, you know, we, we have something here for you if you're interested.
0: Was HIDL, uh, humans in the loop, was that, is that an acronym you came up with or did that exist? No,
1: that existed in like the machine learning literature. <laughs> Again, I, I wish
0: just... I knew that one <laughs> because, it, because it so effectively communicates that it's a part of a larger process yes. or a larger system to use your language. It communicates that it's part of a larger system in a way that I think is just very clear.
1: Totally. But to be fair, like it wasn't an established term of art in 2015 or 2016. It probably was in in ML circles, but not popularized in the industry. And so we were able to kind of latch onto that and say like, well, this is what we do. We're the humans in the loop of machine learning, and this is how our algorithms get better. And then, yeah, all my work at Twitter was basically kind of building out that thesis and staffing up the team to execute on it. And you asked it kind of at the start of this, what was the most demoralizing or challenging moment It's probably the fact that by the time we finished in October, we had more than a dozen projects in flight or under our belts. We had started to push charts up into the right. We were like really establishing this, this will work. And to have that cut short, you know, it's just kind of sad in its own way, but you, you try to take pride in what you have accomplished.
0: Can give us some compare and contrast between Google and Twitter culture.
1: It's interesting. So a lot of the systems and the tools are very much similar. So like, I mean, I, I shut down my Google laptop and shipped it back to them one week and three weeks later, I opened my Twitter laptop. I'm at the yeah. same desk, the same screen. And a lot of the tools look the same. Funny, um, yeah. So that, that, that was kind of funny. In some ways I felt like I didn't leave at all, but I really felt the culture through the screen was very different. Mm. I mean, Twitter benefited a lot in my mind from being a smaller company. By the time I left Google, Google was really a dozen companies and you could feel that, you know, there's good and bad that comes with that. It was just a different experience. When I joined Google in tw- 2008, I think there were just under 20,000 employees, still a very large company, but it felt like the, the, a single culture. And right. by the time I left, there were different corners of the company and different cultures. Twitter was one culture. And yeah. I'm not going to say that there weren't different flavors of it, um, depending on the team, but it was very clearly one culture. And, and one of the phrases I loved about Twitter. You know, that maybe if you're on the outside, you think it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's like this idea of one team. Yeah. And that is just, I felt so powerful. And maybe because I didn't feel that at Google, I feel like, you know, Google, you know, the joke was always that there were like three different teams working on the chat problem, like building their own chat product. Yeah. So you didn't have a sense of one team sailing in the same direction. And at Twitter, there was always, it was just, we were all part of one team trying to accomplish the same OKRs, the same goals.
0: St. Ignatius, in Creating, Contemplation, and Action, as you mentioned. And it says, men and women committed to the service of others and to a faith that does justice in the world. How do you see that manifesting over the last 25 years? I mean, do you, and how do you see that? How do you think of that in action, in retrospect?
1: When you're around it for multiple years during your formation as a youth and as a person, it just really seeps into your pores um, in ways you don't realize it. And I think that a lot of the work that that my teams have done that I've tried to do in our best moments is always having that consideration for what's the effect on others of the work that we're doing. And I think that's why content people were a little bit faster to the potentially negative effects that our products were having on society because there is a sense of, and this comes from journalism too, there's a sense of like, the impact that a great journalist has is not visible on a traffic chart. I love what Tony Hale has done at Chartbeat and like his next chapter that he had at, at Twitter and so on. And so I think like that that consideration of what's the effect of the impact that our work is having, you know, if I try to put the Jesuit language to it, it's like, are we being men and women for others in the way that we're building this product, right. or are we being, you know, the, the the cynical, contrary take on that would be the Silicon Valley ethos of build a thing fast, scale as fast as you can. We're going to become a unicorn. We're going to become rich. And I'm not saying everyone in Silicon Valley feels that, but that's definitely that there's an ethos there. And so I think those are contrasting value sets and contrasting motivations.
0: And can potentially contribute to the sense of otherness. I felt a sense of otherness my entire time at a place like Facebook that was distinct from the kind of otherness I felt at MTV News.
1: So glad you said that. Yeah. I mean, it's, and and that, I mean, especially in those early days at Google, I felt like a fish out of water all the time.
0: And I'm, to be honest, I've felt that way my whole life. You know, I just felt very other. What do you want to do next?
1: I am trying to figure that out. Definitely catching my breath. I'll tell you what I didn't do. I'll acknowledge my privilege in in this statement. I did not race to update my LinkedIn or to start applying to jobs. I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I can afford to do that. I'm not on an H1 be visa that's going to yeah. kick me out in 60 days. So I, yeah. I'm grateful for that. But I just knew that I had to, like, I, I went to Twitter pretty quickly after leaving Google. I yeah. had a couple of weeks off, but like, it was a continuation of the same work. So um, I'm trying to take a beat. And I'd say the three things I'm kind of channeling my efforts toward is first, if I do have a dream job, what is that job description? Yeah. Like, could I actually write that out as an exercise and kind of socialize that with some people who I trust and admire? and get some feedback on it. I'd say the second thing I'm trying to do is cultivate my own skills. And the third thing is I'm really trying to build community. I'm really trying to build this network of people who have this expertise, who have this discipline, and shape it as such. To be totally upfront about the motivation, you know, the person who can convene a bunch of people who are really good at something, often opportunities roll up to that person. I'm not cynically motivated to do that, but we can all talk to each other and share and learn about what we did and do what we do better that's great that that's 100% success
0: one of my operational theses is that working in new york city working in the news cycle and then working in tech in the sort of pressures of the half and the constant up and to the right as you put it in, on the bingo card imperative that that manifested in me as a again a source of cortisol as, as chronic stress and i guess i I just ask like, to what degree does that resonate with you? What's your experience been with stress and managing your wellness if you feel comfortable sharing it?
1: Sure. Yeah, no, I, especially during 2020, I really ran into that. So, you know, 2019 was in a lot of ways doing MTC made it a great year and I didn't have a ton of stress. I had like, I had pressure, but it was a very useful and productive type of pressure that led to good things. And I had that network, the cohort, yeah. Of of MTC that got me the through. The
0: community. It. Yeah.
1: Right. The community. 2020, that's all gone. Yeah. So it's like, okay, my job has expanded, but now I have no network. We're all you isolated. Know, yeah. Isolated. And we don't know what's next. And I really invested a lot in stress management and just kind of personal daily habits. And really kind of my wife and I actually, at one point late in 2020, I took like a medical leave from Google because I was just burned out. Smart. And I was like, yeah. I'm done. We had two small kids at home. So it just took like four to six weeks, I think. I liken it to just taking the house down to the studs yeah. and then rebuilding it the way you want. From the moment we woke up to the moment we went to bed, we just reviewed all of our habits. And we just, the ones we liked that added to our experience and that gave us energy, we kept. And the ones that stole from our energy or took away from our experience and, and our ability to, to be good parents or to be good partners to each other and to be a good employee, we threw those out if it wasn't adding to those. And so that resulted in just like commitment to exercise, commitment to meditation, commitment to even just like daily walks in the neighborhood, you know, family time, that type of stuff. So we weren't doing anything that was groundbreaking or revolutionary, but we brought intention to it and we were willing to throw all the bad habits out.
0: Take yourself back to shooting hoops in the backyard with your brother. What would you tell him? What kind of insight would you share back? What guidance, what would you tell him now that you would wish you had, you know, throughout the last 25 years plus.
1: I was a very scared kid. Mm-hmm. So I was bullied a lot. I often chose paths that, um, you know, were the least fearful to me. I think the advice I would give him would be, it's okay to be afraid. So you don't have to choose the path that you're afraid of just for the sake of it, but to be okay. And, and to maybe reassure that kid that like, you're going to be afraid a lot of times in your life at different situations. And it's okay to just acknowledge that fear and live with it. I always thought when I was younger, and probably lots of kids do, that like the fear was my fault. I was afraid of something and that was my own shortcoming. Right. right. And um, And you can see that just as we were speaking a moment ago, when things were really hard in that job at Google and I thought my team would be threatened and I was afraid of that. I thought that was my fault in some way. And I'd say the thing that helped get me through or the way in which I've maybe matured over the past five or 10 years, hopefully I have, is that I'm a lot more comfortable with fear. I can acknowledge mm. it. It's like, I'm terrified. Like right now, I'm terrified of whatever my next job might be or not having a next job at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's not hyperbole to say like, that's terrifying to me. But it's not keeping me up at night. You acknowledge it, you defuse it, and then you can channel it in the right ways. You know, I don't think anyone's equipped to do that when they're a kid. But that's probably something that, that really dominated and shaped my personality as a kid is I was always afraid of what would happen next. And just to kind of tell that kid that it's okay to be afraid. It's not your fault to be afraid. And and you can live with that.
0: The nervous system is all about safety. The brain is actually doing a workshop in 42 minutes on it. The brain is hardwired for safety. And, you know, who can do their best work when they're not feeling safe?
1: I have a five and a half year old son. I I enrolled him in a rock climbing class uh, over the fall. The teachers worked a lot with him in terms of how to climb the wall and keep yourself calm when you're doing it. And there was one moment a few weeks ago where I'm, I have my phone out cause he was okay with it. He wanted to show me. he's like, dad, watch me climb this wall. So I'm filming him doing it. And he reaches up and his hand grabs a hold and one of his feet slips. And he basically kind of holds onto the wall with like one hand and half a foot. And then he gets back on the wall and he keeps going. he comes back down, we watch the video. I point out to that, that moment to him, like, hey, look at this, you almost fell off the wall, but you gathered yourself. And he said, yes, I just took a deep breath and I said, it's okay in my heart. And then I kept going and I just gave him the biggest bear hug. And he probably yeah. wondered like, what is dad doing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I'm just like in my head, I'm thinking you have learned something and also yeah. had the language to express it yeah. that I didn't have until I was an adult. And frankly, a lot of people don't ever get, it's not like he's finished. And my work here as a parent is done. <laughs> we'll, we'll reinforce that over the years, but for him to have that moment yeah. and to be able to express it and to say like, and to have the experience of like getting scared calming himself with his breath and staying on the wall and then continuing to go up and saying to himself, I'm going to be okay. I was just like, that's all any of us can hope for.
0: Friends and Neighbors is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Please help us bring Friends and Neighbors, the documentary, to the big screen by visiting fnndoc.com. Without your support, we simply can't finish the film or carry on this deep and simple podcast. So thank you. It's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.